Hello, and welcome back to the Second World Sepsis Congress. Session 7 will focus on antimicrobial therapy and source control. We have a great lineup of speakers once again, and your chair is Satish Bhagwanji from the United States. As always, please use the chapter markers if you want to listen to one specific speaker and head over to YouTube should you wish to see the slides of the speakers. Before we start, a quick word from our exclusive sponsor for this session. Thermo Scientific Brahms Biomarkers, part of Thermo Fisher Scientific, investigates, develops, and manufactures novel diagnostic test procedures to improve early diagnosis and patient management for a broad spectrum of life-impacting diseases. Combining medical innovation with highest technical standards, we contribute to the creation of a healthier future to the greatest advantage for medical professionals and patients. Thanks to Thermo Fisher for sponsoring the Second World Sepsis Congress. Now, let me hand it over to my colleague to start this session. Good evening to everybody. Good morning to some, I'm sure. My name is Sats Bhagwanji. I'm the chair of the session from Seattle, Washington. Um, I want to begin by thanking um, all of you for attending. We have people from over 150 countries, uh, many thousands of folks interested in sepsis, and we're really excited to have our second World Sepsis Congress. Um, before I say anything else, I would like to thank our special sponsors for this session, uh, Turbo Fisher Scientific. Uh, with their contribution, we are able to host this particular session. Our focus this, this time round is going to be on antimicrobial therapy and source control. Earlier today, there was another session with a slightly different focus. Um, so this session is going to be very interesting and exciting for all of us. Our first speaker is Piat Muller from Switzerland. Piat is Professor and Medical Director of the University Department at Kantonspital, Aral, Switzerland. His clinical and research interests focus on pragmatic outcome and quality control studies using hormonal biomarkers. And he's going to talk to us about the role of procalcitonin for antibiotic stewardship. Thank you so much, Biat. Thank you for the kind introduction. You already read the title, so I want to drive your attention to the picture, and I would like to remember you until the last slide where it will come again. So the task I was given, I want to share with you in four short chapters. First, I want to show you where the procalcitonin, or abbreviated PCT, provides additional information in the context of sepsis. Three stages or three steps can be divided. First, at the beginning of the disease, there is a rise of the biomarker, where you evaluate the patient. In this context, when the patient often presents at the emergency room, you ask the question, can it improve the diagnosis of sepsis as compared to other biomarkers or as compared to the clinical diagnosis alone? Both questions have been investigated in the 90s and early 2000s, and you see that as compared to other, especially in Europe, used biomarkers like C-reactive protein, PCT performs better with an average sensitivity and specificity of 85 to 90%. If you compare it with the clinical diagnosis alone in the absence or with procalcitonin, you see that you can improve the clinical diagnosis and the clinician up to the 
same level of about the sensitivity and specificity of 90%. This graph will come in the final slide again, so please remember it. The second question is, when you have admitted the patient with sepsis to the ICU or the hospital, how will he perform? Will he have an inadequate infection control? Or, based on your supportive and antimicrobial measure, will he have effective treatment and hence a good outcome? There, the prognosis of procalcitonin levels or procalcitonin levels have prognostic implications, meaning if the procalcitonin levels stay up or don't decline above a twofold increase in mortality results, whereas if it declines below a threshold of 80% of the initial value, then you have a marked, markedly better outcome. So the course of procalcitonin levels is prognostic. Third, you asked, well, if the patient improves, can you then stop antimicrobial therapy based on decreasing procalcitonin levels? This has been investigated in several randomized controlled trials. The first question was, can you rule out bacterial infection with a high enough sensitivity and specificity in low-risk and high-risk patients? And can you monitor patients and make an early stop of antimicrobial therapy? The design of these randomized control intervention studies was always the same. You basically had sepsis or, in many cases, respiratory tract infection, which is the most common cause of sepsis, and then randomized patients to either an antibiotic therapy based on guidelines or based on the procalcitonin levels, which was not on a black and white threshold, but rather on threshold levels with much more or less aggressiveness to initiate or withhold antibiotic therapy. These studies of more than 5,000 patients have been analyzed with, together with the Cochrane Library in the individual patient data meta-analysis, arguably the highest level of evidence you can achieve. In this analysis, it was found that it, in low-acuity patients, be it in primary care or in acute bronchitis, you markedly reduce initiation of antimicrobial therapy on admission. If you have patients with high acuity disease, especially on the ICU or with community-acquired pneumonia, then you don't save many antibiotic therapies or courses at the beginning, but you markedly shorten the duration of antimicrobial therapy. For the development of antimicrobial resistance, it's just important to re reduce either initiation or course duration of antimicrobial therapy. The amount of reduction was between 20 and 65%, mostly in low antibiotic use countries. This study has been extended from adults to neonates, where also a 20% reduction of antimicrobial therapy was found as published in the Lancet last year. Now, the even more important question is, is this safe when you give 
shorter courses or even withhold antimicrobial therapy. The first study was the PROHOSP study published in JAMA, which had the power to address safety. There, the total serious adverse event rate, as expected, was very high. But the adverse event rate in the procalcitonin group here in red tended to be lower as compared to the control group. Highly significant, there was a marked reduction of about 30% of antibiotic-associated adverse events, of course, because you used less antimicrobial therapy. In the then biggest ICU studies published in the Lancet Infectious Disease two years ago, they even found a reduced mortality and a better outcome if patients were treated based on the algorithm with procalcitonin as compared to the standard care group. In the same meta-analysis I reported earlier, also outcome was analyzed in 5,000 patients from over 20 randomized controlled trials. Here you see the result plot, and you see that overall there was a reduction in mortality if PCT was used to guide antibiotic therapy. This reduction was mainly due to high-acuity patients in the ICU or in hospital care. The reason for this reduction in mortality was explained here mainly by three reasons. When procalcitonin levels are low, it prompts clinicians to seek alternative cause of disease and thus make another specific treatment. The lack of reduction in procalcitonin levels during the course might identify earlier non-responders. And the reduction of side effects of antibiotic therapy, as shown in the PROHOSP, might have an influence on that. Finally, nothing is perfect. What are the pitfalls of procalcitonin? And there, it's all about teaching experience, and confidence. These are some of the pitfalls of ProCT, which are important to learn, teach, and experience, so you can use it, as with every medical procedure we do. The cutoff range depends on the clinical setting. In a GP, the cutoff level will be lower as on the ICU. They are for positive and negatives, in about 10% of cases. A single PCT measurement, while giving an indication for initiation of antimicrobial therapy, but should be followed up during the course of the disease. We have no microbiology information by measuring just PCT. And most importantly, it's a different concept as we used before. This came to illustration when two studies are compared, on the one hand, the PROHOSP studies performed in Switzerland and published in JAMA, and the American copy of the PROHOSP study recently published in the New England Journal, the PROACT study. Whereas in the PROHOSP study, there was a marked reduction of antimicrobial therapy, as indicated here, the PROACT study did not find a reduction in antimicrobial exposure. What explains this difference? 
mainly its protocol adherence, a part of other factors which the authors laudably also mention. The inclusion rate in the PROACT study was only 20%. The inclusion rate of screen patients in the PROHOSP was markedly higher, meaning that in the PROACT, mainly high equity studies were shunted. The experience with PCT on the center was much lower in the US as in Switzerland. And most importantly, protocol adherence was mediocre in the PROACT study, whereas it was very high in the PROHOSP studies. The overruling was mainly based on the belief of the clinician that a bacterial infection is present and thus the patient needs antibiotics. Please bear in mind that the meta-analysis has shown that obviously this opinion of the clinician is wrong. This has been shown that in the setting of a US hospital, it is very difficult to change behavior, maybe because also of legal penalties and fears, as compared to the hospital setting in Switzerland and in France, and especially also the outpatient setting. It was also shown in this Archives of Internal Medicine paper that if you are naive with a biomarker, you get much less compliance as compared when you're experienced. And especially in pneumonia, people are reluctant to withhold or reduce the courses of antimicrobial therapy, despite a better prognosis, if you would do. So in this context, and this is my final slide, I would like to remind that beliefs are very important in our society. And here you see the picture again. This picture is from Kentucky, the USA, where there is a life-sized replica of Noah's Arch. This is sponsored by 27 million of creationists called Answers in Genesis, which believe that the universe is 6,000 years old and the Earth is created in six to seven days and the group is waiting for the next flood and they are convinced it will come. This despites overwhelming scientific evidence that suggests otherwise. Similarly, the clinicians in the PROACT study had the thought that the patient needed antibiotic therapy, despite overwhelming scientific evidence that this is not the case. Which comes to the final conclusion that evidence suggests biomarkers like PCT make bad doctors worse and good doctors better. Thank you for your attention and I'm ready to take questions. Thank you so much, Piat. Um, does anybody have any questions? I haven't seen anything in the text sent to me. Um, no yes, I have one Sorry, go ahead. I also did not see any questions on my screen. Okay. Um, so my question would be, do you feel it's a useful test for patients in whom the diagnosis of sepsis is clinically very obvious. In the patients where the diagnosis of sepsis is clinically obvious, you of course start with antimicrobial therapy. Although be aware that also viral infections can mimic the picture of sepsis. So you will treat some patients falsely with antimicrobial therapy. 
But based on a risk analysis, when you have a high mortality or bad prognosis, it's prudent in these patients to start with antimicrobial therapy. During the course, of course, then you can follow up PCT levels and then stop antimicrobial therapy after two, three days in case the initial diagnosis of sepsis is not confirmed or after average five to seven days in a normal sepsis. Okay. Do we have any other questions? All right. In the absence of that, thank you so much, Piat. It was very, very incisive, and you did a lot in 15 minutes. Really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much. We shall move on to our second speaker, and that's going to be Thierry Calandra. He's Professor of Medicine and Head of the Infectious Disease Service at University Hospital in Lausanne, Switzerland. His interests include the immunocompromised host and fungal infections. Uh, unfortunately, he's not joining us live, but he had the wisdom of taping his presentation, and so we're going to hear the recording. Please go ahead, Marvin. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Thierry Calandra and I have the great pleasure to discuss with you the topic of the indication and the choice of antifungals in critically ill septic patients. Let me warmly thank the organizer for the very kind invitation to participate in this wonderful conference. The next slide is my disclosure slide. The next slide shows the yeast and molds most frequently isolated in critically ill patients with invasive fungal infections. Candida accounts for 80 to 90% of the fungal isolates and Aspergillus for 5 to 15%. Cryptococcus is ranking number three, the most common clinical presentation being cryptococcal meningitis. Occasionally, other fungi, primarily molds, may cause infection in immunocompromised hosts, such as solid organ transplant patients or hematology-oncology patients. Let's now focus on the two most common invasive fungal infections. The next slide shows the yeast and molds most frequently isolated in critically ill patients with invasive fungal infections. Candida accounts for 80 to 90% of the fungal isolates and Aspergillus for 5 to 15%. Cryptococcus is ranking number three, the most common clinical presentation being cryptococcal meningitis. Occasionally, other fungi, primarily molds, may cause infection in immunocompromised hosts, such as solid organ transplant patients or hematology-oncology patients. Let's now focus on the two most common invasive fungal infections. This slide summarizes the main characteristic of invasive candidiasis in critically ill patients. The incidence is 1 per 1,000 hospital admission and is 1% in the ICU. Candida infection accounts for 5 to 10% of healthcare-associated infections. The frequency of candida sepsis is 5% in large randomized controlled trials. In terms of epidemiology, one has observed an increase in non-albicans candida species. Candida grabrata is predominant in uh, northern uh, Europe and North America. 
Candida parapsilosis in Southern Europe, Asia, and South America. Very recently, Candida auris has emerged as a multidrug-resistant yeast spreading in healthcare settings, first seen in Asia and now reported in a dozen of countries. The next slide shows data from a large Swiss epidemiological study that included more than 500 episodes of candidemia. ICU, as you can see, accounted for a third of the episodes, the rest being equally distributed between medical and surgical patients. Let's now move to invasive aspergillosis. This slide shows the characteristic of invasive aspergillosis in ICU patients. The incidence ranges from 0.3 to 6%. It is difficult to distinguish colonization from infection. The most frequent clinical presentation is pulmonary aspergillosis. The main risk factors are COPD, chronic lung diseases, liver cirrhosis, influenza, and steroid therapy, which is a major risk factor also in patients with underlying lung diseases or influenza. Diagnosis is difficult. The clinical and radiological signs are nonspecific. The famous halo sign is usually absent. Aspergillus fumigatus is the prevalent species. Cultures are positive in 50% of the patients with a low positive predictive value. Few PCR studies have been performed. Regarding antigen detection, the galactomanning test has low sensitivity in serum and a higher sensitivity in bronchoalveolar lavage. There are few studies on beta glucan. Overall, the mortality is very high, in excess of 50%. The next slide shows the underlying conditions associated with invasive aspergillosis. Patients with hematological malignancies are at high risk, and patients with pulmonary diseases are at an intermediate risk. Of note, among patients with pulmonary diseases, 50% are in the ICU, and 90% have received corticosteroid therapy. The next slide shows the various management strategies for invasive fungal infections. Prophylaxis is preventive therapy given in a high-risk asymptomatic patient. Preemptive therapy is therapy given in a patient with colonization or a positive detection test. Empirical therapy, as its name implies, is therapy given in a patient with risk factors who may be colonized and is presenting with signs and symptoms suggestive of invasive fungal infection and who has not responded to antibacterial therapy. Targeted therapy is therapy given for a microbiologically documented infection. The next slide shows the four main classes of antifungal agents available for the management of patients with invasive fungal infections. Azoles are targeting yeast, 
ketoconazole and fluconazole, or yeast and molds, itraconazole, voriconazole, posiconazole, and isavuconazole. The spectrum of activity of echinocandins includes candida and aspergillus species. The spectrum of activity of amphotericin B is very broad. It exhibits activity against yeast and molds. Flucytosine has a spectrum of activity which is quite limited to Candida and Cryptococcus neoformans. It is only used in combination with other agents such as azoles or polyenes. The next slide shows the recommended antifungal therapy according to the type of treatment for invasive candidiasis and aspergillosis. For candida infection, guidelines recommend to use fluconazole for prophylaxis and preemptive therapy, and echinocandins are an alternative therapy. Echinocandins are recommended for empirical and targeted therapy with fluconazole and lipid formulations of amphotericin B as alternative therapy. For invasive aspergillosis, the guidelines recommend the triazoles for prophylaxis and for targeted therapy. Voriconazole and isavuconazole are the recommended agents and lipid formulations of amphotericin B are an alternative therapy. Very few studies have been conducted for preemptive and empirical therapy and recommendation is to use the same agents as targeted therapy. This slides depict the new antifungal agents that are in clinical development. These novel agents are acting on various targets, including metabolic pathways, signal transduction pathways, cell membrane, cell wall synthesis, or even gene expression. Two new glucan synthase inhibitors are in clinical development. In conclusions, candidiasis and aspergillosis are the most frequent causes of invasive mycosis in ICU patients. The risk factor and clinical manifestations are nonspecific. Early diagnosis is difficult and they are associated with high morbidity and mortality. For invasive candidiasis, fluconazole is the treatment of choice for prophylaxis. Echinocandins are recommended as initial therapy with lipid formulations of amphotericin B and azoles as alternative or for step-down therapy, the azoles. Invasive aspergillosis, triazoles are the agent of choice for prevention and targeted therapy. Please note that therapeutic drug monitoring, TDM, is usually recommended for triazoles. Thank you very much for your attention. Okay, thank you to Terry and his absence. We're going to move on to our next presentation. Alison Holmes is going to be talking to us. She is Professor of Infectious Diseases at the Imperial College in London. Her areas of research cover infectious disease epidemiology and antimicrobial resistance. 
and she's going to talk about the challenges to implementation of antibiotic stewardship. Thank you, Epson. So, um, hello from London, and it's a great pleasure to be speaking, and I will be talking about implementation of antibiotic stewardship, and I first would like to say why it's um, critically important, and that is, of course, because of the global burden of antimicrobial resistance, which is a leading clinical patient safety and public health issue worldwide. And of course, it's antimicrobial exposure and antimicrobial usage that is a major and a reversible driving force of, of, this issue, of this issue. But what do we mean by the term antimicrobial um, stewardship? So what we mean is about optimizing the use of antimicrobials, improving the appropriateness of use reducing consumption, and above all, improving patient outcomes. Through this, making enormous economic savings, reducing drug-resistant infection. But I also would like to make the point that included in stewardship is, of course, reducing the need for treating infections and reducing the need through effective um, infection prevention and control. So, it is a global priority, and it's well recognized that the sustainable development goals for the world will not be achieved if antimicrobial resistance is not, is not addressed. And indeed, much of the progress made around um, uh, addressing these goals will, will be lost. So it truly is a, a, a global priority. And to address it and to address this challenge, we really need political commitment and leadership to reduce our global antimicrobial footprint. But of course, it's beyond political commitment and leadership for sustainability. We need civil society um, to be involved in this activity as well. But we're faced with huge challenges because, of course, when we are addressing how to optimize antimicrobials, we absolutely cannot compromise access. And it's really important that we recognize that antimicrobial stewardship is about ensuring there is access and sustainable effectiveness. And this is something that's, of course, critical um, for sepsis management as well. And underpinning antimicrobial stewardship and sepsis management is, of course, having adequate microbiological diagnostic support and, sur and surveillance. And this needs to be um, across all health sectors. And I'm just going to focus for um, a while on acute health care. Um, and this is a photo from colleagues in um, Kerala who've been through a tough time recently um, and their amazing antimicrobial stewardship work. So just to highlight that within um, inpatient care, 30 to 60% of our patients receive antibiotics and um, up to 50% of these um, look like they may be um, inappropriate. And we also know that when we're treating sepsis, around 50% of patients treated for sepsis are not actually then found to have it. And another major challenge is, of course, antibiotic use is not just driven by microbiology. It's significantly shaped by social, behavioral, and contextual factors that we need to consider if we're really going to address it. And we need to make sure that with an acute health care, that it really is a shared goal for everybody to address antimicrobial stewardship. And this indeed is a challenge that we need to make sure that this is something that all of us working in healthcare. care um, are thinking about. But 
I have to say that we really could do enormously better because some work done by a colleague, Tim Rawson, looking at the discussion about antimicrobial resistance and stewardship across a range of, of, of um, uh, specialities and looking at state-of-the-art international conferences and looking at how often this topic was even considered was really a bit of a wake-up call on how poor we are at engaging across the specialties. And it particularly worries me that looking at this data in terms of who is talking about antimicrobial resistance, I think the fact that people within emergency medicine and nephrology and hematology areas where we particularly need to think about how we use antibiotics um, carefully um, and where the threat of resistance is so great to those patients, we're not actually even thinking about it um, at their big meeting. So I hope this is going to change um, and I hope it has, I, I hope it is changing right, um, right now. So the other thing that we need to consider is also, of course, um, the context of how we use antibiotics in surgery versus medicine. And we also need to consider about the wider healthcare community and how we work with our colleagues in nursing and pharmacy. Really, really important. There's much greater, greater engagement there. And we also know that any um, intervention in healthcare to improve um, healthcare, it's all about having a shared goal and working with teams, communities, and networks. So that's something that we absolutely, absolutely need, need to do. And this um, shared vision that we need to have within within healthcare really needs to be embedded in how we run healthcare, um, embedded in our governance structures, in quality indicators, and our communications must be aligned and support this. And I think it's very important that messages about stewardship, infection prevention, and sepsis are all interlinked and not seem to be um, not seem to be undermining each other, but are all around. Um, addressing optimizing care and optimizing um, antimicrobial usage. So I think one of the other things that can help enormously with communication is com keeping messages simple around prescribing and keeping um, messages simple. Um, we've learned that certainly from many other um, areas. And in the UK, there was one message about start smart then focus that was very useful um, and it engaged with all of the healthcare workforce. Um, and also linking that to having this um, um, prescribing um, as, a, as, as a quality indicator within healthcare also reinforces the message, as indeed technology can. And we need to think of technology as an aid in terms of, um, in terms of um, sharing and improving um, communication. So technology is not just about sequencing and diagnostics. It's also about changing behavior and helping with implementation. It can be used in um, to get groups together as boundary uh, technology is a boundary object that different, social, that different professional groups can talk around that can change behavior, optimize practice, incentivize through the use of gaming, for instance. Um, all different ways technology can help. Um, with um, improving prescribing. Um, and of course, we can also use it, um, we can also use it in clinical um, decision support systems, which I would like to touch upon now. I, computers and um, simple clinical decision support systems can be enormously helpful in antimicrobial stewardship. But we also need to recognize that 
frequently diagnostics and decision support absolutely does not match the real world and what prescribers need and mapping to the real world decision pathways sometimes are completely irrelevant and will not change behaviors because they don't recognize this. So we need diagnostics and information, um, not just to inform the initiation of treatment, but recognizing that this is truly a dynamic situation. And we also need it to inform de-escalation and stopping as well as initiating. And I think there's a problem with those big lack of co-design in some of these systems. And it's really important that we engage with end users in terms of designing the clinical support systems that they need. So these support systems need to recognize the context, as I said, that it's a social construct in terms of prescribing within healthcare. We need to recognize that. We need to recognize the hierarchies in decision-making and make sure that the decision support systems help with that. And as I said, make sure that it helps with um, tailoring treatment and not just initiating. And I think the um, other areas that we should be thinking about is that they absolutely are not adequate in terms of inter-individual variation as well as intra-individual variation across, uh, across time in one individual. There are major gaps in how we use these systems for dose optimization and about how they can um, integrate with novel diagnostics as they come around and also working with the end users in terms of what they need and what will influence decisions and how will the data be presented um, to them to influence decisions. And of course, patient engagement is needed. And I think we're really, really learning how important this is um, in terms of not just decision making in primary care, but also in, in, in acute care. And as infectious disease doctors, we also need to recognize that patients have more than infection, um, uh, the matter with them. And we need to recognize polymorbidity. And this also has to be part of our decision um, support system. So thinking of individual decision making, this has been mapped. Again, this is work by um, Tim Rawson. And the kind of six different areas of decision making, but our current decision support tools only seem to address um, the initiation of treatment. And really, we need to be much more creative and make sure we can support all the different areas of decision making. Um, and there are many technologies available that could be integrated to do this from wearable technologies, linking to surveillance, rapid diagnostic prediction tools, point of care sensing, biomarkers. And of course, artificial intelligence and um, real-time um, continuous monitoring um, that I will touch on a little bit more now, because I think there are some major, major opportunities with this type of technology where we integrate decision support. We really, really develop personalized antimicrobial selection, informed and informing diagnostics and surveillance, um, and bringing in optimizing um, optimizing dosage as well. And of course, engaging with end users and making sure that patients and public completely understand what is being, what is being done with this technology. So we're really interested in optimizing dosing, bringing together the use of sensors, using minimally invasive technology such as microneedles, um, that can be put on something the size of a postage stamp, which can measure um, drugs and biomarkers in the interstitial fluid. 
we can use systems that have been used in diabetes and anesthesia to provide closed loop control um, and monitoring so that it's really dynamic and tailored for the individual patient, but also, of course, providing rich data to inform us how to use our um, antimicrobials much better. And, of course, behind all of this is the development of artificial intelligence which could really, really help us in optimizing antimicrobial use, antimicrobial stewardship, and of course, um, sepsis, um, sepsis management. So I just would like to finalize um, my talk on just, just considering artificial intelligence and where we are. And we're in its infancy in terms of um, infectious diseases and antimicrobial stewardship, but there are enormous opportunities there. Um, as well as challenges, of course. But we should see it as a means of enhancing evidence-based practice and make sure that the concerns about unsupervised machine learning and are addressed and also that built-in will be the monitoring of and sensitive um, monitoring of potential unintended consequences. But of course, I refer back to what I was saying before about um, improving uh, stewardship it absolutely requires understanding of the end user decision making and their complete involvement and, and co-design. So I'm going to um, stop there and I'm just going to say thank you and acknowledge um, my research funders in the, some of the work that I've presented to you now and say thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alison. Um, we have a question which I think is quite important. One of our colleagues wants to know what would be, what is the impact of different healthcare systems? In other words, whether there's a government-sponsored system versus a private practice model of care. How does that impact on this whole situation? So, really interesting question, and I think there's some very interesting issues about private care and so internationally learning from um, private care and making sure that we get data from um, private care. So, I mean, I'm um, talking from um, the UK, of course, and I work in a, a public sector. I work in a national health service, and there are some significant advantages to that, as well as some significant, significant challenges. So, in terms of the rapidity of implementation, that's frequently much easier in, in private organizations. But in terms of the need for public um, for sharing of data and the importance of participating in national surveillance schemes and making sure that they're shared quality indicators, that can be more of a challenge. But there are advantages in, in the different systems. And I think the other thing to um, make sure that we address is that, of course, having regulation, it's a really important top-down issue, but for sustainability, we need that bottom-up approach as well. So we need, we need both, whatever the healthcare system. Alison, thank you. If you could give us a quick answer to this next question, which I think is very pertinent. The question is, what are the practical applications of antimicrobial stewardship in light of the need for broad-spectrum antibiotics in the management of septic shock, certainly at the very beginning. Right. Okay. So I think that's a very important question, which I think is why we need to be focusing much, much more on de-escalation and looking at our prescribing at um, uh, 48, 72 hours. So 
it must be reviewed at 48, um, 72 hours so that we can de-escalate. And we need to have systems in place to help people um, de-escalate or stop if it's not needed. So you can go in with all guns blazing, but it must be reviewed. And that's why we need to have dynamic systems. And that's why we need to have quality indicators, which include the review of antimicrobial prescriptions um, so that we don't continue on broad spectrum antibiotics, which will may be unnecessary and may not just harm the patient, but harm, uh, harm others. So it's all very well going in fast, but we need to have the system where we can look again. So that's why the kind of start smart and focus, um, that why, that's why they have that strap line so that we can look at the de-escalation. We can focus. All right. Thank you so much, Alison. Thank you for Pleasure. posing the questions. We'll move on to our next speaker, who is Anna Carles. He is Professor of Infectious Diseases, Head of the Laboratory Alert at the Division of Infectious Diseases, Sao Paulo, Brazil. Her primary role is establishing standards and measures for monitoring, control, and preventing prevention of antimicrobial resistance in the Brazilian Health Service. And she is tackling another very important subject, which is antimicrobial resistance in enterobacteriaceae. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you. I would like to thank the organizing committee for inviting me to speak about this important theme. And I will be mainly speaking about how to deal with it in the hospital setting. I am a general coordinator of Brazilian Committee on Antimicrobial Susceptibility. I have also served as a consultant for pharmaceutical companies, as well as for the Brazilian Minister of Health and Brazilian Health Surveillance Agents. As probably most people know, Enterobacteria represents a large group of gram-negative bacteria that includes many genera like Escherichia and Klebsiella. They are common etiologic agents of infections acquired in the community and healthcare settings. And they usually they colonize many species, colonize the digestive tract of humans and animals. The spread of antibiotic-resistant bacteria represents a serious public health problem and E. coli and Klebsiella pneumonia with resistance to third-generation sepsisporins and carbapenem resistance Klebsiella ranked among the top five critical pathogens to support, to support research and development of effective antibiotics. Production of beta-lactamase is the main mechanism of beta-lactam resistance. In 1983, it was reported for, reported for the first time the production of extended spectrum beta-lactamase in Germany. These ESBLs are able to hydrolyze penicillins, monobactams, cephalosporins, including the new cephalosporins like cephtholine and cephtalosan. However, they are inhibited by classic beta-lactamase inhibitors like clavulanic acid, and subactam. And the preferential beta-lactam substrate may vary according to the SBL type. Following its initial report, the prevalence of SBL-producing isolates have increased worldwide, leading to the increase in consumption of carbapenems. It has been speculated that this increase could have been associated with the emergence of carbapenemase-producing isolates like KPC, OXA48, and NDM1. Although the prevalence of each resistant strain varies geographically, Klebsiella pneumonia producing KPCs in the OXA48 have become happily disseminated. 
KPC is the, is the, has been reported as the most frequent carbapenemase worldwide, being endemic in some countries like the US, China, Greece, Italy, Brazil, Argentina, and Colombia. While Roxa48 is more common in the Mediterranean region, it's especially the most frequent carbapenemase reported in Spain, Bel Belgium, and France. In contrast, NDM1 is more frequently isolated in the Southeast Asia, is the most frequent carbapenemase encoding gene in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Carbapenemase encoding, encoding genes are usually carried by mobile genetic elements like transposons. And take an example, KPC. KPC is located in a family of transposons, CNE3, which is present on a wide variety of plasmids that vary in size, structure, and replicon. These plasmids are mainly conjugative and are able to be transferred to distinct bacterial species. Usually, these plasmids carry other resistance genes that confer resistance to multiple antimicrobial agents. Infections caused by carbapenemase encoding, encoding genes are associated usually with high mortality rates, in part because these patients are seriously ill, sometimes they are old patients with many underlying diseases, and they, but KPCs are also resistant to multiple antimicrobial agents with limited therapeutic options, which results in delay of early appropriate antipherical therapy, Sometimes it's difficult for the laboratory, microbiological laboratory, to detect carbapenemase, weak carbapenemase producing isolates. And they have a very, they have a, a potential for widespread transmission via mobile genetic elements, as I have just showed you. How to tackle antimicrobial resistance in interbacteriation? As Alison has just told you guys, using antimicrobials wisely, reducing the consumption, preventing the new infections, breaking the chain, developing new antimicrobials, and applying new strategies. Development of new, anti new antimicrobials have recently been approved by FDA for treatment of urinary tract, interabdominal infections, or both. Plasomycin and erovicycline are not beta-lactam antibiotics, so they are not affected by beta-lactamate production. The new betalactam betalactamase combinations have activity against the SBL producing isolate. Although Toltas, Septilosanitasbactam, that I'm going to say just Toltas, has shown in vitro and in vivo activity against the SBL producing isolate, it does not have activity against carbapenase. In my opinion, it should be reserved only for treatment of pseudomonas infection. In contrast, the combination of betalactamase in new uh, beta-lactam inhibitors like septazimabactam and meropenem have activity against class A carbapenemase producing isolates, but do not have activity against class B carbapenemase. While Kazavi has activity against OXA48, mainly because septazim is not hydrolyzed by this enzyme, meropenem retaining the activity against some Kazavi-resistant Klebsiella isolates. Comparative clinical data between septazimabactam and meropenem-barbactam is lacking, 
we do not have a study comparing the, the, the clinical outcomes using both and microbes at the same time. But we have just a few small reports comparing the efficacy of Kazavis to alternative agents. In this case, in series, most patients received Kazavi combined to other agents, and mortality rates were lower in patients receiving Kazavi compared to those receiving carbapenem, aminoglycoside, or cholestine carbapenem. And, and furthermore, the acute kidney injury was lower in patients who received Kazavi than those receiving aminoglycoside or cholestine combination. There is an increased number of reports documenting the emergence of Kazavi resistance, mainly in patients previously exposed to this combination, due to many mechanisms like hyperexpression of KPC3, mutation in the porins encoding genes like OMPK35 and 36, mutation in CETXM14 or PBP3. In curious, it was reported that an infection caused by a Kazavi resistance KPC3 producing Klebsiella pneumonia was successfully treated with meropenem. The mutation have arisen around the KPC omega loop and at the position 179, increasing the affinity for Ceftazim but reducing the affinity for Avebactam. Using antimicrobial wisely is important because the exposure the duration and the cumulative number of prior antibiotic exposure were factors independently associated with uh, carbapenem resistant interbacteriation infections or even with SBL infections. So it's important to, to prescribe the antimicrobials that we have uh, currently, like wisely. We have studies that showing that restriction, restriction of cephalosporins for prophylaxis and fluoroquinolones for sept shock were able to reduce the ESBL producing colonization. We have also an Italian study that showed that education and semi-restrictive control of antimicrobial prescribing by using a software showed a reduction in antibacterial consumption as well as the incidence of carbapenem-resistant Klebsiella pneumonia bloodstream infection. And we have this study that was conducted in the London, in a renal, renal unit. They had an outbreak caused by an OXA-48 producing, uh, producing Klebsiella pneumonia. And using, uh, using a, a forecasting, a RIMA model, they, they could observe that the consumption of meropenem was highly correlated with the incidence of OXA48 producing organisms in the four years previous to the outbreak. When the intervention was placed, that was many infection control measures, but basically were the reduction of meropenem consumption. There was a decrease in the consumption of the total antimicrobials, except for amicacin. And there was also a reduction of the number of cases of oxyphorgate colonization and infection. How to prevent new CRE infections? We have guidelines for prevention and control of CRE infections that have been developed by CDC, by the European CDC, and by the WHO. The WHO guidelines are the first ever global guidelines for the prevention and control of CRE 
Antinetobacter, Balmani, and Pseudomonas resistant to carbapenems in the healthcare facilities. They included eight recommendations that are intended to support infection pro uh, program improvement at healthcare facility and at national level. Although most recommendations like hand hygiene, surveillance, contact precaution, and patient isolation are strong, the quality of evidence to support them vary from very low to low quality of evidence. It's difficult to grade the evidence of each specific recommendation because usually they are implemented together. While environment cleaning, monitoring, auditing, and feedback are also very strong recommendations, surveillance culture from environment is a conditional recommendation, but it's very important to, to call attention for timeline notification of CRE notification and communication of CRE status at discharge and transfer uh, transfer to the of the patient. I want to be optimistic, so I want to report the Israel experience. And in 2006, Israel healthcare system faced a large outbreak of KPCs that was caused by a KPC clonal complex 258. And in response, Israel established a national infection control infrastructure that included the creation of the National Center for Infection Control. This, this, they, they also have included the expansion of the information, information technology. They increased the microbiology lab capacity and increased infection control prevention resources. And with the creation of a regulatory board to oversee all infection prevention and antimicrobial stewardship in the country. As a result of these changes, many success have been achieved, including the, the containment of the CRE outbreak, an uh, important reduction in the central line associated bloodstream infections in the ICU. They have also a successful containment of a VRE outbreak. They have reduction in antibiotic use in the patient and outpatient setting. And new strategi strategies. We have fecal microbiotic transplantation because colonization is, is precedes usually the, the infection, so it's very important if you are able to colonize the patients that are colonized by MDR isolate. However, fecal microbiota transplantation, we have studies that show that it's a very successful measure, but we have others that don't, that fail to prove that it was a successful uh, a measure. But we have an important limitation because we can have the clearance, natural clearance of the colonization by, by, as, as time goes by. So we have this very studies limitations because these studies were applied in a selected population. We have lack of control group. We have a very small study group, a very short follow-up. Most of these patients were just follow-up for four weeks. And one important thing that is not addressed in any study is the effect of factors beyond the intestinal homeostasis. What would happen with these patients? So it's a promising, it's a promising strategy, but we don't know exactly what will happen in the future with these patients. Another approach would be knocking out the resistance genes. We have decreased CAR systems, 
the crispies are clustered regularly interspaced short palindromic repeats, and they are associated protein scans. They have many distinct applications uh, because crispy induces double stranded breaks and has been used to target specific gen genes, knocking out these genes. You can establish susceptibility to, to, to the, the bacteria to many antimicrobials. The problem is to deliver this system, we have used bacteriophages or plasmids, and sometimes these bacteriophages are very specific to a, a one species of bacteria. We have also a problem in the in the reading these phages because many times we have to administrate them through oral administration, and they can be become unviable because of the pH of the stomach. So this this we have many studies that have used CRISPR-Cas with successful uh, knocking out the gene and show side effects, but we are not um, we are not yet ready to to apply it in the clinical setting. But we are very close. And we have also development of vaccines and antibodies that could be like promised in the near future. So I would like to finish my presentation. Just like making a point that's very important, the integration of antimicrobial stewardship with infection control programs. is of fundamental importance in addressing the problem of MDR interbacteriation. New antimicrobials represent a valuable addition to the therapeutic arsenal against MDR infection. However, we, are, we have many questions that were not addressed yet, like we do not know if it should be prescribed as a monotherapy or a chemotherapy. We do not know exactly the emergence of resistance during treatment and the ecological effects of these new drugs in the hospital microbiota and in individual microbiota. I'm optimistic, so I think that the promising new strategies will have a place in the control of CRE. And I would like to say thank you to the audience and to everybody to listen to me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Anna. Uh, one quick question as we are running out of time. How big an issue is the practice of non-intensivists, for example, surgeons who prescribe prophylaxis for several days as opposed to just one, which is what most of us would like to do. I think it's a, re it's a really a problem. And I think not a problem, but I think that the surgeons and any physician should like should be educated about the risks and uh, of like the emergence of resistance in interbacteriation as well as acinetobacter and pseudomonas. And I believe that antimicrobial stewardship would we have a place, important place, in, in this situation. It's the only way that I, I think that the only measure to do is education. There is no other way to, to, to deal with this problem. Okay, thank you so much, Anna. We'll thank move you. on to our next presentation. Professor David Patterson is Director of the University of Queensland Center for Clinical Research. His major interest is in clinical trials of antimicrobial strategy in this era of resistance, which is the exact subject of his presentation. Thank you so much, David. Welcome. Thank you very much, Satish. Uh, I'm just going to start with some disclosures. Uh, I have been on advisory boards for a number of companies that make uh, some of these new antibiotics, Merck, Pfizer, Shionogi, Archaeogen, and GSK. So uh, what I'd like to do today is really talk about the, the new antibiotics that are available for empiric therapy in this current age of 
antimicrobial resistance. Talk briefly about uh, the problem. Should we use combination therapy or monotherapy? And how should we apply stewardship of these new empiric therapy choices? So I'm going to start perhaps controversially with giving you um, some potentials for empiric choices in this new era. So I'm going to firstly address you by your region and I'd like you to have a think about what is the percentage of uh, isolates in your ICU that are carbapenem resistant or ESBL producing and therefore we could sort of construct a potential algorithm. So first of all, if you are in a setting where there's a high prevalence of CRE or carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas aeruginosa, CRPA, or a high prevalence of carbapenem-resistant Acinetobacter baumannii, CRAB, then what might your uh, empiric choices need to be? This is obviously in the setting where you would have availability of these new choices. So if, for example, in your ICU, say more than 20% of your uh, Klebsiella or Enterobacteriaceae are carbapenem resistant, and if they're likely to be KPC, then we do have now the options of Ceftazidime avibactam or Meropenem vapobactam. And in the next slide, I'm actually going to give you some explanation about why these might be appropriate choices. If we have a high percentage uh, of Pseudomonas aeruginosa that are carbapenem resistant, and if this is the dominant gram-negative pathogen in your ICU, then we have the potential for Ceftazidime avibactam or Keftolazane tazobactam. And if, however, you are in the more unfortunate situation where you've got a lot of carbapenem resistance, but it is likely to be due to metallobetalactamase producers, MBLs, or is predominantly due to carbapenem resistant acinetobacter, then you're in a lot more trouble. Obviously, we've got polymyxins as an option, uh, including colistin, but there now is uh, a drug not yet approved in any jurisdiction, but called Spiteracol, which is active against these uh, most nasty of our resistant gram negatives. Now, you may be in a, a, a an area where there is only an occasional carbapenem-resistant organism that pops up. However, when you look at your Enterobacteriaceae, you do have a substantial prevalence of ESBL producers. And in that situation, carbapenems may well be the appropriate choice and possibly also Keftolazane tazobactam. And then finally, if you are in a setting where... Uh, you have relatively infrequent ESBL producers, CRE are rare. In that situation, as a general rule, piprosuin, tazobactam, or cefepime, or ceftriaxone may be appropriate. Now, this is just a very high-level uh, schema. 
It is obviously very much going to depend on an individual patient, particularly what antibiotics they've received in the past, what their uh, prior infection or colonization history is with respect to resistant gram negatives. But I'd just like to uh, put it out there that these are the potential options that are available in this new era. But let's sort of go through with a bit of explanation as to why I am uh, suggesting this. So let's go through some of the, the new choices. First of all, for KPC producers. So historically, KPC producers have been uh, with an epicenter in the northeast of the United States. Subsequently, they've spread elsewhere in the United States. Uh, then uh, in Mediterranean Europe, particularly Italy and Greece, certain parts of the United Kingdom, for example, uh, Manchester, and then uh, certainly in, in parts of China, we've had these KPC producers. And the, the good news for us is that with KPC producers, we now have a range of inhibitors. So beta-lactamase inhibitors active against KPC. And so these are, first of all, AV-Bactam, which is combined with keftazidine, Vavor-Bactam, which is combined with meropenem, and Reli-Bactam, which is combined with imipenem. Now, that final one is not yet available commercially in any jurisdiction. Meropenem and Vavor-Bactam is available in the United States. And keftazidine avibactam is available in many parts of the world now. We also have a new aminoglycoside that is active against most KPC-producing strains. Now, obviously, aminoglycosides don't care less about what type of uh, beta-lactamase is present because they're not beta-lactam antibiotics. But there is an association with various aminoglycoside resistance mechanism and various types of, of uh, carbapenemase. And thankfully, most of the uh, KPC producers are susceptible to a new aminoglycoside, at the moment only available in the United States, called plazomycin. So this is the, the current menu if you do have a high prevalence of KPC producers, if you do have a person who was uh, colonized or previously infected with a KPC producer and now has developed sepsis in your intensive care unit. Now, we do have a, uh, a little bit of um, uh, information about new drugs active against carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas. And here there is an additional option, keftolazine tazobactam. So previously when I talked about KPC producers, there was really the, the situation where we had new beta-lactamase inhibitors. Here, keftolazine is a new cephalosporin that has enhanced activity against the penicillin-binding proteins of pseudomonas and therefore does have uh, activity against probably 80% of our carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas isolates. Keftazidine, which we've known for a long time is a typically a very good anti-pseudomonal uh, beta-lactam antibiotic, 
when combined with AVBactam, does also cover about 80% of carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas. So again, we've got to sort of hone it down to your individual intensive care unit, your individual patient, a, a patient who is known to be carbapenem be colonised with a carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas, now gets a severe uh, ventilator-associated pneumonia, these might be the empiric options. Now, we are, we are in a lot more difficulty when we have metallo-beta-lactamase producers, MBLs, or carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter. We've had tigercycline available, but... I guess most people have been somewhat underwhelmed by uh, its utility. There is a new drug somewhat similar to tigercycline called aravacycline, which has now been approved in the United States, although only approved for intra-abdominal infections. And in vitro, it does have activity against MBL producers or carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter. And finally, I have mentioned it before, this new, what we call a sidero-4-cephalosporin called cefidericol. It has a dual advantage in that it can uh, withstand a lot of different beta-lactamase producers, even MBLs, and it also takes advantage of the sidero-4s, the channels through which a bacteria acquires iron and therefore it can rapidly get through the outer membrane of of gram-negatives and get to the penicillin-binding proteins. So in vitro, it is the the most exciting new antibiotic we have in that it has this really great uh, activity against MBL producers or carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter. Well, of course, you know, we're really interested in... um, in trials, and unfortunately, we are not seeing the clinical trials that are perfectly applicable to our situation. So, for example, um, there have been trials on uh, Keptazidine, maybe Bactam versus Meropenem for nosocomial pneumonia, including ventilator-associated pneumonia, but they're not specifically targeting uh, carbapenem-resistant organisms. And you'll see here, uh, when we look at clinical cure, this is in all comers, that there is a non-statistically significant difference uh, between heftazidine, maybe Bactam, and meropenem. Similarly with mortality, similarly with uh, successful outcomes against Pseudomonas aeruginosa. There is some numerical difference there, you'll see, but this is not statistically significant. So we are left a little bit in the dark as to whether these in vitro advantages really translate into clinical advantages when we uh, have a patient in front of us who we think is going to have a carbapenem-resistant organism. They might have uh, sepsis related to ventilator-associated pneumonia. Should we use the new drugs or not? We don't yet have the clinical data. We're only relying on in vitro uh, superiority. Now, the the question of combination therapy versus monotherapy is is one we've been banding around for a a long period of time. And there is uh, some 
clinical trial data that's now been published by uh, Paul and colleagues in Lancet Infectious Diseases this April. And here they were looking at patients who had carpopenem-resistant gram-negative, bloodstream infections, pneumonia or urosepsis. When they did their final analysis, the vast majority were carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter. Now, what is the, um, their finding? And it was a really, really disappointing finding because with either option, colistin alone or colistin plus meropenem, clinical failure rates exceeded 70%, 28-day mortalities exceeded 40%. So for colistin alone, 79% had clinical failure. Colistin plus meropenem, 73% had clinical failure. That difference was not statistically significant. With 28-day mortality, 43% died who received colistin alone. 45% died who received colistin plus meropenem. So these authors conclude that there is no advantage with adding uh, meropenem to colistin for carbapenem resistant organisms. You know, you might intrinsically say, well, of course not. There's, um, why would a carbapenem help with a carbapenem resistant organism? But in vitro, there was certainly a suggestion that there was synergistic activity if you added uh, meropenem, for example, to colistin. So the author's conclusion is that if you've got a carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter uh, or other carbapenem-resistant organism through which you're using colistin, there is no advantage to adding a, uh, a carbapenem like meropenem. Now, I do have to caution you that there is a, a blinded trial sponsored by the NIH, which has been going for probably eight years now, which has not yet reported its results. Uh, which is also addressing this question. So the question is still live. It hasn't, I don't think, been completely settled by that particular study. Now let's move to the scenario where uh, you don't have a lot of uh, carbapenem-resistant organisms, but ESBL producers are frequent. And we've probably heard a fair bit over the last few years that could you actually use piperacillin tazobactam for treatment of ESBL producers? And we now have randomized controlled uh, data. And this is from uh, Patrick Harris, who presented this at ECMID. And he compared meropenem versus piperacillin tazobactam in more than 350 patients with bloodstream infections due to ESBL-producing Klebsiella or ESBL-producing E. coli. And there was really quite a substantial mortality difference. 3.7% 3, 3 of those treated with uh, meropenem died in 28 days versus 12.3% of those who uh, received piperacillin tazobactam. That uh, difference was statistically significant. There was uh, the study was powered for non-inferiority, but unfortunately there was not non-inferiority of piperacillin tazobactam versus meropenem. So let's go back to that, um, that slide. Uh, 
uh, again on you know what could be our empiric choices if we had availability. So I'm going to say if in your patient population more than 20% of those uh, with the dominant gram negative are carbapenem resistant, if you've got a likely KPC producer, uh, then keftazidine maybe Bactam or meropenem Bactam may be options based on in vitro uh, data, although, as I mentioned, we don't yet have the, the clinical data to really back that up. Keftolazine tazobactam or keftazidine maybe Bactam, if we've got a likely carbapenem-resistant pseudomonas, and we have to say at the present time, colistin monotherapy, if we've got an MBL or a carbapenem-resistant acinetobacter. And hopefully, we'll get some good information when sofiterocol becomes available. If we've got a high prevalence of ESBL producers, then the trial data is now suggesting that carbapenems would be the option, and still we're left with a more individualized decision uh, if we've got relatively infrequent ESBLs and rare carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae. Now, I just want to finish uh, by talking a little bit about um, you know, stewardship of these new choices. Am I saying um, just go for it, you've got availability of these new drugs, let's cover all of the bases? And, you know, the devil's advocate would say, yes, you know, resistance, there's lots of drivers of resistance. There's things uh, like agricultural antibiotic use, um, general practice antibiotic use, in some regions over-the-counter antibiotic use. Isn't infection control more important anyway? And, you know, we see um, presentations in which you know, there is certainly the majority of antibiotic use used around the world is actually for, uh, for livestock, for agriculture. And we know that that um, can potentially contaminate uh, via the animal species, contaminate uh, the food that we, we eat. But I think there are good arguments in favour of um, stewardship of our empiric choices. Sure, we acknowledge that there's issues outside hospitals, but we're very capable of de novo generating resistance by our own antibiotic use in our hospitals. And that can certainly lead to high concentrations of resistant organisms in the patient's gut or on their skin and therefore person-to-person -person transmission. So some general principles if we're going to be using these new empiric options. Make sure we don't use them for colonization of the urinary or respiratory tract. We're not just acting on a laboratory report. If we do start them and find that we don't have CRE or an ESBL producer, let's streamline them or de-escalate them as soon as possible. If we start them, use them in an appropriate dosing regimen. Don't underdose them and Jeff Lipman will be following me and he'll be talking about this. And now we're seeing increasing um, numbers of studies talking about short-duration therapy. And I really just want to finish with this point made very um, elegantly by uh, an infectious disease physician called Lou Rice. And when he gave this 
Maxwell Finland lecture at the Infectious Disease Society of America talk. It's the only talk at that sort of seminar where I've ever seen people give a standing duration, a standing ovation. And Lou got that standing ovation because he pointed out that it is very, very difficult for us to get between um, us who are antibiotic stewards to get between a an intensive care physician and their patient in terms of that empiric therapy choice. A more viable strategy is really to have what we call back-end stewardship where we uh, look at curtailing and streamlining antibiotic therapy. We know we don't do this as well as we should, but that is certainly, the, um, in my mind, the optimal way of antibiotic stewardship in the intensive care unit. So I'm going to finish there. Uh, certainly, we've got lots of outside influences on antibiotic misuse, and they need societal and governmental attention. In hospital, when we're going to be using big gun, expensive, very active antibiotics, we do need to have local stewardship activities. The general principles I applied of how we use those uh, antibiotics and how we curtail those antibiotics, we really do need to apply those across all geographic areas, although the actual choices are going to depend on your local prevalence of carbapenem resistance, local uh, prevalence of ESBL producers, and uh, really individual patient factors. We have to acknowledge that these new drugs are very expensive, and is there some other model of drug availability so that we could um, really be able to use these antibiotics in the most appropriate settings? So, Satish, I will finish there, and I'm very happy to take questions. Great. Thank you so much, David. That was a fascinating presentation. Um, I have a question from one of our colleagues, which I think is particularly challenging. Hopefully, you can help us. Half the world has not got access to basic antibiotics and epidemiological data. What are their options? Yeah, so, so this is, uh, this is huge. This is, you know, even if we looked at, um, ESBL producers, for example, we know that they are widespread in Africa, many parts of Asia, South America, and yet empirically in many settings, people don't have access to carbapenems, let alone to, to any of these other options I, uh, you know, I mentioned. There are now, I guess, sentinel reports uh, from, from various groups in different parts of the world. So I would absolutely assume that if you are in a developing part of the world, you are going to have a substantial prevalence of ESBL producers. Probably not yet carbapenem resistance, but ESBL producers are going to be in... Uh, in virtually all of the world except for certain pockets of, of Western Europe or Australia or New Zealand uh, or parts of the United States. So I think we do have to uh, assume that they are out there and therefore alter our empiric choices. 
Great. Thank you so much for that, David. Um, we're going to move on to our last speaker for this session, who is Professor Jeff Lippman, previously director of the Intensive Care Services, Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital, and more recently concentrating on research. And his interest particularly focuses on the pharmacokinetics of antibiotics, which is what he's going to talk to us about. Thank you very much, Jeff, and welcome. Hi, Seth. Thank you for the introduction. Hi, everybody. I'm going to talk about uh, the, whether continuous infusion is time is right yet, and I'm going to start off with some background information to put into perspective why you should or shouldn't use or what the uh, veracity of the data is for continuous uh, beta-lactam infusion. I think it's important to realize that pharmacokinetics is dose concentration and pharmacodynamics is concentration effect and PKPD is dose effect. Effectively what PK is, is what the body does to the drug and pharmacodynamics is what the drug does within the body. In relation to antibiotics, pharmacodynamics relates to the concentration of the antibiotic and its ability to kill or inhibit the organism. So PD is concentration, ability to kill in relation to antibiotics. And the best data comes from Will Craig's laboratory and he's the doyen of PKPD. And this is still a very topical and good article uh, that he published in 1998. And in it, he has the classic uh, diagrams, which I'll go through in a minute. On the x-axis, you've got time. On the y-axis, you've got growth of organisms. And on the left-hand panel, there's tobramycin, and the top graph is the control group of organisms growing. And then as you add a little bit of tobramycin, so there's kill, and as you increase the concentration of the uh, tobramycin at the level of the bacteria, so there's a quicker, shorter time kill, uh, a quicker kill of, of bacteria. That's in contrast to the right-hand panel, which is tycacillin, control growth, the top line, and as you increase a little bit of tycacillin, you'll get a bit of kill, but after a magic concentration, there will be no increase in your ability to kill off the bacteria. This therefore has led to the concept of kill characteristics of antibiotics, where you have the concentration-dependent kill characteristics of aminoglycosides, increasing the concentration, quickens the kill, whereas the non-concentration-dependent beta-lactams or time-dependent kill, where above a certain concentration, there's no improvement in the kill. And if you look at that in relation to uh, human data or uh, a serum level of antibiotics, if I give you a dose of, of uh, an antibiotic, it will rise as I infuse and drop off over time, and you get that type of uh, serum concentration. And if you add to that, superimpose upon that uh, the MIC, the line there shows time above MIC. And we, we may be able to discuss it, but there are certain concentrations of or a time above MIC that's important. We probably look at four times uh, MIC, time above four times MIC, but that's the curve that you'd have with uh, time relationships and MIC. 
Now, just to put in perspective, the uh, con the uh, continuous infusion data, I'm going to go through some of our work to illustrate the point. I started off in Hong Kong in, in uh, 1997 publishing a serum uh, profile of keftazidine in 10 patients. And you can see uh, some of the patients drop off over time and don't have time above MIC or time above four times MIC. And we then took that data and predicted what a bolus dose plus a continuous infusion would give us. And we showed that we could predict that a continuous infusion would have four or even higher time above MIC continuously. We then prospectively tested that uh, prediction where we randomized patients into continuous infusion versus bolus dosing and showed that the bolus, the continuous infusion does keep, as the predicted values, serum levels high and enough above MICs. We then subsequently did a randomized control study on keftriaxone, bolus dose versus continuous infusion. But keftriaxone started uh, going out of favor in our hospital, so we didn't enroll enough, and we had to stop the trial at 50 patients. We did have a composite endpoint data, which was post, uh, post hocly put together, so it's a problem, but it did have a little bit of signal that continuous infusion did improve uh, composite outcomes. We then thought, because it's a small study, we'll look at all the uh, studies that have looked at continuous infusions and put a meta-analysis together to see if the same signal is there. And in 2009, this meta-analysis showed no difference or couldn't demonstrate any difference of continuous infusion versus bolus dosing in clinical cure, couldn't show the value of continuous infusion in uh, mortality. So we therefore set up a feasibility study to see whether we could actually test in a branded way whether we could infuse beta-lactams and how feasible a study was. And we uh, looked at 60 patients in five different units, Hong Kong and Australia, and published this in 2013, showing a little bit of separation in outcome. Not obviously small as a feasibility study, but there was a little bit of a signal. We then uh, looked at a double-blind randomized study going from 60 patients to 420, just blinded across Australia, double-blind randomized study, with a 90-day outcome as follow-up. And we published this in the Blue Journal, and lo and behold, to our, uh, my, my, my heart dropped when I saw the data, intention to treat no difference. So we couldn't prove that continuous infusion was any better than bolus dosing. At the same time, we did a study in uh, Malaysia with the same uh, endpoints, uh, end but non-blinded in a two-study, a two-center study. And in this group of slightly sicker patients to the Bling One, we were able to show a little bit of difference, but certainly no statistical difference in the outcome of continuous infusion. We put all of this data together in an individual patient data meta-analysis article, and we could show a little bit of a separation. 
But I point out to you that this is all hypothesis generating. And the biggest, now with a whole lot of new data coming through, you can do meta-analyses of prolonged infusions, and these are two of the most recent articles, prolonged infusion, one by us and an American group, showing prolonged infusion uh, gives better outcomes. And then there's a, a Greek group showing the same type of thing, that prolonged infusions in a meta-analysis probably has better outcomes. But I do put it to you that as levels of evidence, the single biggest study, the best level of evidence we have, a double-blind randomized study, is that there is no difference in outcome of continuous infusion versus bolus dosing. So my take-home point is if you put it all together and put in levels of evidence, put in levels of evidence, we still have a little bit of a doubt whether continuous infusion is better. So we've subsequently, to all of this, put together a 7,000 patient international study looking at randomizing bilolactams, and we're looking at meropenem and piptaz into bolus dose versus continuous infusion with primary endpoint of 90-day outcome. I think we started enrolling with about 120 patients at the moment. It is going to be run out of Australia and New Zealand. UK are coming on board in the next month. Uh, Belgium are coming on board for the European arm, and we're running it in the Malaysian arm as well. And until that data is there, I don't know hand on heart whether I can say continuous infusion is better. What do we do in ICU at Royal Brisbane, where I work? If the patients are not on bling, we are still using intermittent dosing, but we keep our troughs high by, by uh, uh, online therapeutic drug monitoring, uh, point-of-care therapeutic drug monitoring, keeping our troughs high. So in conclusion, I put to you that continuous infusion at this stage may be better, but there's a possibility that it will have no difference in outcome. Here is the levels of evidence for our Cochrane collaboration, and I'll leave you with that uh, concept that, to date, I cannot hand on heart say continuous infusion is any better than keeping your troughs high with either uh, different dosing or TDM. I thank you for your time and attention, and well done to the organizers. This is a great uh, system. Thank you very much, Jeff. Um, we have a question about the toxicity of continuous infusions of beta-lactams, particularly concern about neurotoxicity. Any comment about that? Uh, it's a good question. Um, there's not enough data to show uh, particularly continuous infusion versus bolus dosing having uh, toxicity. There are certain drugs that are more potentially neurotoxic than others, and it seems to be a high level whether it's the peak or the continuous infusion, there is no data yet. I haven't seen any data showing that continuous infusion will produce toxicity other than the high serum level, but it's still too early to answer that question. Good question. Another question, Jeff. Do you think there's an issue about the group of patients that are being studied? 
for example, is it not possible that the sicker patients might benefit whilst those who are not so sick will not? Well, I think it's, a, it's another good question. I think what the issue is, if, is that with all the data we've got at the moment, there'll be a lot of patients that will have low MICs. They may be sick because of the immune response, but have low uh, organism MICs, and therefore it make, will make no difference. There'll be some patients that are very sick that are going to die anyway and it's going to make no difference. It's that sweet spot in the middle that it may be continuous effusion is better. And what we try to do with Blink 2, uh, Blink 3, is take out the one side and take out the other side and have a sweet spot, but you'll never get that sweet spot. So I think the sickness, the question of your, how sick they are relates to host immune response not necessarily the MIC. I think the answer is going to be the MIC as part of that equation. So here's another interesting question. If Bling 3 is negative, showing no difference, will you do any more studies? No, because I'm too old. But uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I, I, if Bling 3 is negative, it's going to be hard to to show continuous infusion unless you do subgroup analyses. Um, but it's going to be hard after that to do more because this is big. 7,000 is big. Right. It's taken me two years to set it up. Never mind, do it. Okay. Well, I think we're going to have to stop here, folks. First of all, thank you so much to all of the participants who sent us questions and eagerly got involved in these presentations. And then, of course, a big thank you to all our speakers. Uh, we would love for you to participate in a GSA Global Quality Measures Survey. Um, you can see the slide now. It's a very relatively simple and quick survey to complete. And the goal is to try and establish what sorts of quality issues we need to address across the globe. And some of our colleagues have raised the issue about the different realities that we face across the globe. Um, lastly, I want to thank our sponsors, um, all of them, because without their support, um, this virtual reality could never really happen. And thank you once again. And good night, good morning, depending on where you are. Marvin and team, thank, thank you so much for your help. Goodbye. Thanks for listening, and thanks to everybody who contributed to making the Second World Sepsis Congress possible, especially our sponsors, which you can find on the Congress website. We will continue with Session 8, Evidence-Based Treatment of Sepsis 1, next Thursday. We hope you tune in again. See you next week.